Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, everyone, and welcome back to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. We finally reached the end of our special series on the four principal commitments of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And what a journey it's been so far. Let's take a quick look back at our first three episodes. Number one commitment, promotion of human value. Humans are really born to be kind. People are fundamentally altruistic. Um, uh, These are part of our basic nature. Of course, we can learn to be selfish. We can learn to hate, but that's not our natural tendency. One of my commitment is to try to promote genuine harmony among different traditions. All of the students uh, got up and of course, all of them bowed down because they knew exactly what to do. So I also bowed down. Um, And His Holiness, I think, knew who I was because he walked up and he straightened me up Mm -hmm. and he said, you're a Muslim, you know, you're not allowed to bow down before a human being. Mm -hmm. I'm a human being, so you should not bow down. You you cannot imagine the impact that it had on someone like me. The culture, Buddhist culture, I feel as a result of seeing many trouble in this planet, Tibetan Buddhist culture really create peaceful society. On that aspect, as you know, uh, His Holiness has personally played a very strong role because he took on himself to meet with famous scientists and physicists and uh, psychologists and uh, in his effort not only to learn from them but to uh, find validation for Buddhist practices. Mm -hmm. Overall it has given the Tibetan people also a new uh, respect as well as validation for Mm -hmm. our cultural traditions. Today on our final episode of the series we'll be taking a look at His Holiness's final commitment a commitment to the revival of India's civilizational heritage and its value to today. His Holiness has called India home since the Chinese government forced him into exile from his native Tibet in 1959. But in another sense, India has always been the spiritual home for Tibetan Buddhists as their religion derives from the Indian subcontinent. As a self-described son of India, His Holiness is committed to reviving awareness of the value of ancient Indian knowledge. He is convinced the ancient Indian understanding of the mind and emotions, as well as techniques of mental training like meditation, are of great relevance today. In fact, India, he believes, is uniquely placed to combine ancient and modern ways of knowing. Let's now hear the words of His Holiness Himself. 
Now, hygiene of emotion in modern education, nothing. So, hygiene of emotion come only Indian tradition, based on Karuna and Ahimsa, as I mentioned earlier. You see, these, you see, uh, should combine as a, the hygiene of physical and the hygiene of emotion. So, now that's my uh, fourth commitment. Try to revive this ancient Indian knowledge, which we kept over a thousand years in Tibet. Now this Indian, Indian which you can combine easily modern education uh, and then ancient Indian knowledge combined. To discuss the Dalai Lama's fourth commitment, we have a fantastic fourth and final guest for this Tibet Talks special series, Mr. Rajiv Merotra. If you've lived in India over the past few decades, you probably need no introduction to Rajiv Merotra. He is a pioneering Indian television anchor and reporter who has hosted various programs on India's public service TV channel from the early 1970s into the 2000s. But Rajiv Ji has also been a student of the Dalai Lama for over 40 years, and today he serves as a secretary and trustee of the Foundation for Universal Responsibility of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which was founded with seed money from His Holiness's Nobel Peace Prize. Rajiv is the perfect guest to discuss the Dalai Lama's commitment to the revival of India's civilizational heritage. And recently, he spoke with ICT President Tencho Getso. Let's hear that conversation now. Rajivji, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, Tibet Talks program with the National Campaign for Tibet. In this series, we are focusing on His Holiness's fourth commitment, four uh, principal commitments. Um, given that we just celebrated his 88th birthday, we thought of revisiting with some special guest speakers. Invited you for to speak about uh, ancient Indian wisdom, and in that, and thank you for finding the time and spending the time to join us. So just um, our audience is ICT members usually around the world. Uh, not many of them have traveled to India and have uh, not so quite, you know, they see it from afar, but to have a uh, more personal understanding of it, uh, we thought would be uh, really helpful. And um, so uh, to begin, I wanted to ask if you would just define what ancient Indian wisdom or what His Holiness means uh, how is it relevant uh, today? Well, I, His Holiness, uh, when he talks about uh, ancient Indian wisdom, I think the two elements that he's uh, really looking at are ahimsa, nonviolence, and uh, karuna, compassion, and of course, mental hygiene. I mean, these are sort of the umbrella terms. And uh, as far as uh, ahimsa is concerned, nonviolence, I remember I had the privilege of being with him in Oslo when he got the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. And he dedicated that prize to Mahatma Gandhi. And I think that nonviolence is a fairly familiar concept, but I think that this difference for His Holiness and Gandhi in some ways has been that for His Holiness, it is the motivation mm -hmm. behind 
what you do. So if your uh, motivation is nonviolent, uh, that embodies that. And for Gandhi, it was the means were as, as important as the ends. Uh, His Holiness has written and spoken very eloquently about nonviolence and ahimsa. And the second aspect, of course, was uh, karuna, compassion. And as we know that uh, compassion is, His Holiness is, uh, the embodiment of uh, the Buddha aspect of compassion, Navalakoteshvara. And it is what, uh, in a sense, defines His Holiness and is at the core of his teachings and aspiration. You know, really saying that if you can be truly compassionate, then uh, the self uh, that suffers softens. And uh, so the cornerstone of his teaching is compassion. And that, you know, connects with the mental hygiene. He mean when he uses the word mental hygiene, and he also often uses the idea of mental diet. Uh, what he's uh, really drawing on uh, is the rich in heritage of training the mind. So His Holiness argues that, you know, we spend so much time training our minds to be productive, to get jobs, to look beautiful, or whatever else it may be. But we spend very little time on training our minds to be compassionate and happy, mm-hmm. which really is the aspiration of all human beings to be happy and to avoid suffering. But the, the way this connects uh, to uh, the Nalanda tradition, of which he is the inheritor, mm-hmm. uh, is the juxtaposition of method with wisdom. And that is an extremely important principle in His Holiness's teachings. And certainly when he goes into the more uh, uh, complex aspects of the Dharma and Buddhism, because His Holiness would argue that uh, you know we can be familiar and, and listen to him and be inspired and moved but until we adopt the methods of internalizing uh, compassion so that it is so embedded and, and it's, it, it has very deep imprints in our consciousness that it affects our reflexive responses. So the genius of the civilizational heritage of India has mm-hmm. been this juxtaposition and the methods by which you can train your minds and cultivate them beyond the purely intellectual uh, engagement with it. And, and, and the correlative in some ways is that, uh, you know, the sutra is the, the wisdom and uh, tantra is the method uh, of achieving this. It, it, it goes in and out in many, many layers as far as his, uh, his holiness embodies and values uh, that we're looking at. And so when he talks about the Nalanda tradition, he's not really looking at it purely in the context of its Buddhist identity or association. I mean, of course, it was the Buddhist university and there were these 17 Nalanda masters and what have you. But it was the techniques that were available in Nalanda uh, tradition. The cornerstone of that was the debate, which is a very important aspect of the Tibetan Buddhist practice today. But this isn't, a, this wasn't debating in the manner that we understand it in Western terms, where mm-hmm. two people take two points of view and argue them and one is declared the winner. Mm-hmm. But debating was a technique to nurture intellectual clarity and alacrity. So uh, debaters would take positions which mm-hmm. they would rapidly change in terms of their uh, arg- arguments or interactions with each other. And so this trained them in a very important principle that is so important today is to be able to see 
other points of view, to be able to uh, sort of move rapidly between them. And so that would breed a respect for mm -hmm. the otherness of the other point of view, which is really, really crucial in our times of so much uh, fragmentation and division, where we are really unable to see the other point of view. And this also was that when uh, the Buddhist scholars or the non-Buddhist scholars made the presentations of their philosophies, it mm -hmm. wasn't just proclaimed. The points of view were articulated and had to be defended by mm -hmm. other points of view of people from different traditions, both mm -hmm. within Buddhism and beyond Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the other sort of peg on which His Holiness's teachings uh, stand, drawing from the Buddha, was that it had to stand up to the scrutiny of reason, logic, and experience. So not just people from your own faith, or own mm -hmm. practices or belief systems, but those of others. So I think that at this, uh, I mean, that these are the very deeply uh, important uh, principles, you know, for our time in the modern world. So His Holiness is built on this, in fact, embodies these uh, ideals and principles in his own life and his own uh, practice. And so it, it is all the aspects of the Nalanda tradition which uh, include embracing science or embracing scientific knowledge. Not in the, in the manner of uh, either, uh, either sort of uh, looking for validation, as we often do here today, that, oh, we had this glorious past mm -hmm. and we already discovered this. But the emphasis in Buddhism to understand the true nature of reality. And for that, we have to be open and responsive to all forms of knowledge and including the empirical one that science offers. But most importantly, in the case of uh, the, the method that we're talking about, is the non-conceptual experience uh, of reality, which means that's something that words cannot describe. Mm -hmm. There's a very simple analogy to this, that if I wanted to tell you, um, you know, what coffee tastes like, I couldn't explain it to you until you tasted coffee. And huh? this was really the Buddha's predicament when he attained enlightenment and he stepped out. Now, how do I teach this? Mm -hmm. So. He outlined it as best he could verbally, but he provided the method for its realization. That, I, I believe, is the seminal contribution uh, of His Holiness, apart, of course, from uh, his commitment to uh, nonviolence, uh, which is the cornerstone of his philosophy, of the way he lives his life, of the freedom movement of Tibet. But in terms of India's heritage, this aspect uh, that I, as a student of the Dalai Lama, I uh, truly celebrate. It's holiness. I remember so many times says that the Chela, he calls himself the student of India uh, and India as the teacher. And that now it is the student's job to bring back the teachings to the teacher. In this way, his holiness is, I think, one of the most biggest spokesperson for India because wherever he goes, he talks about the importance of the Nalata tradition, the teachings that he received from India, that he is spreading wherever he goes, also um, putting it in a, not in a religious format, but in a way that is so simple for just any ordinary person to receive and um, get it. And he has, you know, um, reached such a wide uh, listening listenership around the world. So 
Rajivji, can you tell us what is his impact in India itself and how is he perceived in India? You know, again, as, as a Chela, His Holiness, I always respond to that commitment, comment, and really say, well, now uh, the Chela has become the guru and uh, the guru has become the Chela. So he really is the, the quintessential uh, teacher of our times. And what makes him so remarkable is that uh, he is not merely a protagonist of the Nalanda tradition, but really of the entire canvas of India's very diverse uh, civilizational heritage, not just the ancient one, uh, but his ability to go and willingness to go and perform the namaz at a, um, at a mosque or sing, yes. a, sing a hymn. Yes, in fact, it just recently happened, even as we uh, as we speak, and and so that shows a deep celebration of diversity and uh, an expression of this briefly mentioned uh, the mental diet that he talks about. And so, what he's really saying is that the genius of uh, India is the our ability to create the context for people to have the mental diets that they need. And just as we need different physical diets, depending on our climate, our constitution, our predisposition, we need different mental diets. And I think that His Holiness is pretty much today celebrated as the preeminent uh, spiritual master, uh, if uh, to put it in that manner, and uh, who epitomizes the highest aspiration of our heritage. Uh, this is the you know the human being who demonstrates to us that this journey, this achievement is possible and achievable, because here he is and he embodies it. So it's not something you know subject to the most rigorous scrutiny, and uh, the 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 many elements of who he is, uh, and this goes you know right from I mean I really don't know where to begin. I mean in a sense that I mean here is a man who still practices or till very recently. I was practicing several hours a day of his own practice. So it isn't that, you know, he's the Dalai Lama, the incarnation of Avalokiteshvara, so he doesn't need to practice. And the sharing of that journey, you know, whether it is in the film Kundun or his autobiography, of his journey of learning and growing and his continuing evolution uh, towards Buddhahood. And so he hasn't allowed himself to get the stamp of having arrived. I mean, we believe he has, but he doesn't allow that to happen to him. The fact that he would be willing to receive in initiation and teachings, oral traditions from even monks younger than themselves. So he is celebrated uh, in India, and I'd say much of South Asia, and certainly in Nepal, where for political reasons he's not able to visit, or Sri Lanka. But certainly, I mean, I have read articles uh, on extolling him in the Pakistani press in Bangladesh. And so while it may not be as public and broad-based as it is in India, And and this sort of adulation ranges from you know the beggar on the street, uh, you know, to whom His Holiness will lower his car window and greet, uh, you know, the most important political figures who sometimes, as happens in the rest of the world, will meet him quietly. But I think that across the political and cultural uh, landscape, the man who is celebrated, and uh, I cannot think of any other figure resident in India or 
in the world. And I just don't say this because I'm biased and I know I am. So I, it, it is quite an amazing achievement. And, and not to mention the fact that the uh, achievements of the Tibetan refugee community, it is one of the great success stories in human history that a refugee community has been exiled uh, in another country who have uh, retained their identities and remained welcomed by their hosts. And, and that really has to do with Bolanis's uh, own uh, persona and personality and the direction uh, that he has given to this. And it's legion. And I don't want to dwell on the fact that the way that, you know, his, his, you know, his empathetic connection with people, which is a more universal phenomenon, is not just exclusive to India, where people feel this great catharsis from his deep integrity and, uh, and how they feel touched. So he is deeply uh, welcome and sought after. And I think there is great uh, anguish and disappointment that as he ages, that he is not traveling as much as he did. But uh, he is really the first choice uh, for anyone who is organizing any kind of uh, event, meeting or seeking a blessing, even though they may come from other faiths and uh, communities. He is the embodiment of our civilizational heritage. And it, it, it is really moving for us in India uh, that he has now become its greatest proponent and defender in a sense, as it risks uh, getting diluted. There's something I, you know, I, I do want to sort of mm -hmm. add to this as mm -hmm. a way of celebrating the, the, the Guru, His Holiness's contribution and of the Tibetans uh, in this. And the fact that when uh, Buddhism traveled to Tibet uh, from India, other traditions, it didn't travel because of uh, through scriptures and writings, it traveled through practitioners of Buddhism. And when right. they reached Tibet, so it was both the conceptual uh, framework, the articulated teachings of the Buddha, but the method aspect of it. So mm -hmm. the Tibetans preserved this heritage both mm -hmm. experientially and mm -hmm. in terms of the knowledge. And the Tibetan language expanded and, mm -hmm. and came up with a new vocabulary to capture those uh, the nuances of those teachings, which couldn't happen in India because Sanskrit was a frozen language. And so when the Tibetans came to India, like the Tibetan Institute of Higher Studies mm -hmm. in Sarnath, or this Bodhgaya Institute for the President, mm -hmm. uh, India's heritage that named after His Holiness, so they are really bringing back to India that heritage, and it's not just Buddhist. Buddhist Buddhism was one of the peaks in the in the peaks and troughs of Indian mm -hmm. history. Buddhism was one of those peaks. It wasn't isolated from the rest of the heritage. So it is not just about Buddhism. It is mm -hmm. a, this aspect of our heritage that is living, and not just scriptures. That is holiness manifest, and I think people see that intellectually and intuitively and so respond to him in a very special manner. Thank you, Rajivji. And I think His Holiness's own bond with India is very, very special. And for all of us Tibetans also, being India, finding India as a refuge and, uh, and home. I was also born here and brought up here. And I think also the Indian masters who did come to Tibet to bring Buddhism, who brought Buddhism to Tibet, it was to their credit that they said, you have a language and you should study in your own 
language and then translated, began this translation process of all the scriptures into Buddhism. I think we would do in the 7th, 8th century, probably Tibet has the largest number of um, translators anywhere. That is what we have um, today. But now we see when we talk about Tibetan Buddhism, we're also seeing a lot of Chinese influence, Sinicization of the of Tibetan Buddhism, undermining it strategically. They are acting with deliberately with the intent of undermining Buddhism and the and Tibetans. So, Ajifji, do you think India recognizes this, and is there a role that India could be playing in this? Well, I think India is playing and has been playing. Both uh, we didn't just uh, India didn't just welcome His Holiness as a refugee and mm -hmm. kept the Tibetans uh, as refugees. India was very proactive. Uh, even in the educational system that uh, the schools that they set up uh, for the Tibetans, they were encouraged to include Tibetan religion, culture, and language as a subject. So every Tibetan child was exposed to it. And, and for every Tibetan, significant Tibetan monastery that was destroyed in Tibet, another Tibetan a monastery came up in India to preserve those. So in the sense that India has played an extremely active role in the preservation of that culture and heritage. And uh, I think the only thing that may sort of undermine uh, is I think the shifting relationship and of the Tibetan community uh, itself, that the Tibetan population in India is shrinking. It is shrunk by two thirds. So there are fewer Tibetans in India, uh, in the schools and in the monasteries. Mm -hmm. Some of that is in a sense, facilitating. So there are more Indians of Indian origin who are entering the monasteries and the schools are now admitting Indian students. But I think the authenticity of the Tibetan experience and, and, and the practice is, uh, is being diluted from somewhat within the community. Of course, the entire where His Holiness is, we speak, uh, in Ladakh and, uh, which is really, you know, border with better people who don't know there is you know deep passion for his holiness and for the continuation of the uh, the, the tibetan civilizational heritage so I, I i don't think there is any a doubt in any mind of any indian of its value and the need for it to be preserved and i think you know the government of india uh, has you know made many substantial ways done their bit I think what the Chinese are trying to do is not just, I mean, to, uh, sort of capture the agendas of Tibetan Buddhism, but of Buddhism in general. And so there is a major uh, initiative in, 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 the, in other countries to be able to invite uh, scholars and, and uh, spend a lot of money. Uh, and I remember that, you know, going to, to Sri Lanka and some of the monks were telling us that the Chinese were trying to corrupt the Sri Lankan monks by offering them washing machines on each floor and central air conditioning. Mm -hmm. So from the, the, the sacred to the profane, uh, they have been using mechanisms to do this. And uh, I think a critical uh, moment will come uh, when the issue of succession of His Holiness comes up. And, you know, hopefully, as His Holiness has promised us, he's going to be around for at least another, whatever, 20 plus years, that it won't happen in a hurry. Uh, but uh, when it does, because so much of that agenda 
rests his shoulders. And I think that uh, India will be uh, a very welcoming space for the next uh, Dalai Lama, as it will be. But I think that this is an effort that Tibetans will also have to make in its integrity and authenticity. And uh, His Holiness has spoken about the ability uh, and his openness for the continuing evolution of Tibetan Buddhism as it travels to the West. So he isn't stuck in orthodoxy in its uh, practice, preservation and promotion. And India would perhaps offer the most fertile ground to locate for as long as is possible the, the ancient tradition as it was practiced. But I don't think Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism is going anywhere. <laughs> uh, it may change some of its forms, but uh, certainly it has a vitality and relevance uh, that will endure uh, far beyond our generation and our life lifetimes. And there I say even artificial intelligence. And then I also, through even in my lifetime or through my I look at the Himalayan regions all across, as you mentioned, His Holiness is right now in Ladakh. And I think it was His Holiness's clear vision right from the early days. As soon as he was able to travel, he really traveled a lot to the Himalayan regions wherever he could. And I think Buddhism, the practice of Tibetan Buddhism there now is so alive and strong. And, you know, debates and studies are not just in the monastic communities, but also within, you know, society and young people and lay people really actively studying and um, learning Buddhism. So I feel very encouraged by that. And even as I, as we mentioned, the monasteries and schools, you know, because of China's um, blockage of uh, Tibetans crossing over the borders, those have, the numbers have diminished, but at the same time, see a lot more from the Himalayan communities kind of going back to their Tibetan cultural roots and joining these, the schools and monastic communities. And then I think this is a strength for India to have the Himalayan communities because they are of, you know, culturally Tibetan to have them have that as a stronghold. It makes them stronger and also it makes India stronger and richer. You know, it's not just strategic in the terms of, you know, because they're on the border. I think that the osmosis is very deep and it's very profound. So that it is now people from within India who are participating in these, so even it's not just in the, in the Himalayas, it's in even on the streets in the south and, yes. uh, and, and the schools in Dharamsala. That yes. it is the Indian community is beginning to come into it from yes. Ladakh and, and, and from Himachal and, and what have you. So yes. this cross fertilization is in some ways going to enrich this and, and make it more, uh, you know, contemporary and alive beyond just the Tibetan and it'll become a more universal, perhaps an Indo-Tibetan <laughs> variety. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Very much so. And on that note, Rajivji, if I may ask, you have been a student of His Holiness for over 40 years. Can you share with us how you first met His Holiness and his impact on your life and work? Well, you know that I, I, I feel a little embarrassed, I must tell you, because I feel that my uh, you know, the blessing of my relationship 
with His Holiness is he's a man of a deep and great compassion, and I am a most unworthy student. And so I feel almost sort of uncomfortable talking about something that's deeply sacred to me. Uh, you know, he has blessed me with, uh, you know, some of the Rabbi Shekhams of a relationship of uh, Samaya. And uh, the impact is truly deep and transforming. And it is uh, a very, uh, it is living in every moment of my life. And uh, the reason I don't talk about it too much is because I feel that so much is imperfect in terms of what he is and as a student who and what I should be. He, you know, he took me with him to the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony in Oslo. And then, you know, I was privileged to serve in setting up uh, the foundation. And I have continued for that time to volunteer my time to serve him. And not always, uh, like I said, as, as well as I would have liked. So he is, and in fact, he's sort of like a, a deity for me uh, in my practice. And so I try in that to try and uh, learn and to imbibe the many qualities and values that I learn from him. And it sounds a little uh, rhetorical and cliched, you know, to talk about his uh, deep compassion, to talk about his deep humility, and and then to claim that they have impacted me because, you know, I just feel the lack of those, you know, rather than that I have those. But he has been in some ways a sort of both a very generous and gentle teacher, but also uh, a harsh teacher. And I'll, I'll tell you, not in terms of his being angry, but I remember when my mother was dying many, 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 many years ago and I went to see his holiness and I was weeping and he's given me the space to be you know, weep with him. And uh, so in what I had hoped he would say was that he would say that, oh, don't worry, your mother will be all right. And I'm not a very advanced practitioner. And he said, well, meditate on death. And at that time, I thought that was a very harsh thing uh, for him to say, uh, instead of being nurturing and reassuring. And I learned over time that that was really the core of his teaching. I, I remember another uh, you know, incident. I was in Toronto, and there was this big uh, event where there was uh, you know, Karen Armstrong and Ken Robinson, who was an educationist. And someone asked him a complicated, uh, difficult question. And I think the question was that, how do you think the human species will evolve in terms of several millennia? And he was silent for a, a long time. And there was this great expectation that after the silence, and you know, as he, he was contemplating that there would be some terrific words of wisdom. And he just said, I don't know. And it was so transforming to, you know, to, to hear that. The obligation. Them to know everything. <laughs> you know, and, and the obligation that mm -hmm. we feel to have an answer to every question. Mm -hmm. And I say this because I don't really have an articulated answer to your question. <laughs> uh, it is, uh, I mean, who I am. Certainly, if there are any positive qualities they derive from him, and all the negative ones, I am guilty. <laughs> and and I, you know, how did I meet him? That was that was quite magical. I was that I was studying at Oxford, and I came back, and it was the seventies, and I was really messed up, and uh, so I just heard of his holiness, and I wrote a letter to his office, and they wrote back, 
and yes, His Holiness will be happy to see you. And somehow it didn't work, and I got a scholarship. I went to America. His Holiness was traveling. I think it was for the Kala Chakra in Babo. I'm not sure. In 81-82, he went to. There was a friend of mine uh, who was the district commissioner uh, in uh, in that re area, and he was hosting His Holiness for lunch. And so His Holiness and the entourage walked in, and the first question he asked was, "Do you know Rajiv?" This guy was completely flummoxed, and he said, "Where did this come from?" And so he called me up and he said, "You know, the Dalai Lama is asking after you." And I don't know how he made that connection that this was uh, someone uh, that who might know me. So I met him, and he wasn't as busy. Were you already in TV media then? Were you? Is that yes. how? He, yes, oh, yes, I was. He then uh, uh, I met him. And he was very, very generous uh, with his time in those days. I, I was, I was lucky that he didn't have. I don't think he had many Indian students by then. And uh, so it's been. And I, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yes. Step by step. I mean, his oldness, as I think of his life, also <laughs> everything that he's accomplished. It didn't. It just slowly, slowly. It just happened like that, you know, and I think, you know, you're right in saying I traveled to Dharamsala and with me, many of our members and um, yes, have met with this all of us. And every time we meet, I think I remember one of my guests was saying in that space, when you're with him, you're actually the best person you can be. You want to present all the goodness in you. So you have that very special feeling when you meet with him. So I think we're all very lucky and blessed. And it really comes, uh, as, as, as you're suggesting, I think that, you know, we're always looking to identify, uh, again, this is my sort of favorite idea of, of, of trying to conceptualize and verbalize mm -hmm. what are the elements uh, of His Holiness idea, personality, philosophy that are transforming. Mm -hmm. It suggests it is who he is. Period. And, you know, we can try and break it up, mm -hmm. but we cannot break it up in words. And he, and, and, and I think that is, it's, he transforms us not by what he says. And then we somehow sometimes want to grasp at words. And of course, words are important, you know, be cataclysmic sometimes, but it is really the depth of his being. And that is, uh, you know, who he is. And so he has to be in some ways experienced rather than read or you know. No, absolutely. No, Rajivji, you hit the nail there. Yes, it's not something that can be described. Right. It has to be felt. And, you know, no matter how much you prepare, it's completely different for different people. And at different times. Yes. And each time it mm -hmm. sort of resonates with your particular uh, need mm -hmm. or state of being at that time. So I may have a craving at some time, you know, for His Holiness to be reassuring or to be, um, give me a solution. You know, the last time I, you know, I was, I went moaning to him about, uh, you know, the work of the foundation and, you know, it is. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the foundation and the work you do? <laughs> <also>. <laughs> well, I just finished the story because it's, so I'm moaning that, you know, there's so much administrative work and, 
you know, all this is happening and there are files to be, you know, done. And these are challenging times for NGOs in India. And so he looked at me and he said, uh, you're my chela. I said, of course, you're all you know. He said, well, now you solve my problem. I'm not going to solve yours. So it's what I really needed to be told, not what I wanted to hear. And that is his genius, you know, to be able to get it. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, the foundation sort of represents his holiness's non-political, some ways non-Buddhist, formal Buddhist agendas. That's the, that's the idea uh, of our work. So we have worked very extensively on in nurturing interfaith dialogue of uh, building bridges between the Tibetan community and India. So we do um, a, a program uh, where we take you know, sort of 30 odd students for an immersion experience to Dharamsala. This has been going on for 20, 27. This was our 27th year and they have a, a you know, audience with His Holiness. We've been looking at gender and faith and uh, because that is another area uh, of His Holiness's uh, interest. In, in, in terms of the little shift as is, you know, Holiness doesn't have as much time for the foundation. Mm -hmm. My personal passion as a student of his and one of the key aspirations of the foundation today, maybe His Holiness wouldn't approve of it, but I feel it's needed, is to promote the idea of Dalai Lama studies. Is I think we need to begin to study the Dalai Lama, like we studied the Buddha, Christ, Palma, and uh, Gandhi, or what have you. And so we have two fellowship programs where we give fellowships to people who want to do independent research on the Dalai Lama and different aspects of his philosophy and his practice, and also on uh, the Nalanda tradition. Uh, we are supporting at three universities in India, Dalai Lama chairs, uh, again, with the, with the idea to focus attention uh, on this dimension. So one of our uh, you know, other breakthroughs is that we have a partnership with the University of Peace, Costa Rica, and to really try and now further His Holiness's agendas, but equally to deepen our understanding through academic research and study on the Dalai Lama himself. So in the range of activities we do devolve from this. I don't want to detail these and bore you, but this is the. No, yeah. no, it's not boring at all. I'm just saying, this, this is the essence uh, of our aspiration and the little shift. And like I said, that if uh, His Holiness may not be completely pleased that we wanted to study him because, you know. As you're, as you're studying him, you're also studying the Nalanda tradition that's and what right. him that's did. Right. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> but we feel that this is the key now because he embodies it. So yes. what better way to internalize and learn this uh, and his political uh, you know, philosophy, how his negotiation with China and what have you, to break it up. Yes, and his philosophy of nonviolence and peace and compassion and caring for the environment, all of that is just so relevant. He's a man who is much more, you know, thinking much more advanced than anybody else right from the beginning when he was a young man. You know, no. we don't even have, you know, the, there is so much that, you know, each yes. time when I reflect, I think, oh, we missed out on his amazing work with, with social, uh, emotional and ethical learning. And, uh, you know, we have uh, the Delhi government has adopted that program. So there are so many layers and layers of it. But I feel the essence 
is the man himself. And then from that, everything just flows. <laughs> Thank you, Raji. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Tibet Talks. And thank you for sticking with us throughout this special series on the Dalai Lama's four principal commitments. You can catch up on earlier episodes in video form at www.savetibet.org live and as a podcast at www.savetibet.org pod. That's also where you can check out future episodes of the show and you can follow our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. You should also subscribe to ICT's YouTube channel so you don't miss any of our future episodes. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about the Dalai Lama's four principal commitments. At the International Campaign for Tibet, we are honored to serve the vision of His Holiness. Please join us in this work at www.savetibet.org join. Thank you again for being with us on Tibet Talks. We'll be back next month with another episode. But until then, as we always say on the show, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Tujuche. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.